after I finished my Sermon on the Mount series last week, I was wondering what I was going to teach on this week um, and next. I'm planning on doing a series on the last half of Exodus chapter 20 and then all the way through Exodus 21, Exodus 22, Exodus 23, and Exodus 34. And it's going to be a detailed examination of various commandments and instructions in Yahweh's law. We're going to go verse by verse. We talk about the law and the commandments and being obedient. And so it's time to learn more than we've ever learned in the law of Yahweh. It's going to take a lot of time. It's a big endeavor. It might be as long as my Galatians series. Brother McCord loves those long series. So we're doing that for him. He's smiling back there. But I wasn't so sure that I wanted to start that right up today. So I was talking with my sons, two of them, Benjamin and Josiah, my son-in-law. I was talking with them the other day at work like we do so often. I got them cornered in that truck so I can <laughs> preach to them. <laughs> and they can't go anywhere because they're right there. <laughs> the subject of Christmas got brought up. I thought to myself, you know, it's been a long time since I taught on the subject of Christmas. I went back and, and I looked to see when the last time was. And it was 2012, about nine years ago, when I taught on that subject. And I've grown a lot in my faith and my walk since then. I thought, nine years, you know, David just turned 13. I don't have any children that are younger than David. So David would have been four years old when I taught on that subject. And so I told my sons, I said, you know what? There's been a long time passed by. We've got some new people here at the church. And so I thought, well, I'll teach some lessons on the subject of Christmas for a few sermons at least, maybe from now till Christmas. <laughs> this will not be your ordinary Christmas sermons, though, I'll tell you that. <laughs> so a lot of preachers are probably going to talk about Christmas this time of the year, but it'll be a good refresher course for a lot of us. The Apostle Peter in his epistle, in his second epistle, he said, I write to you this second time in which I stir up your minds by way of reminder. So it's good to have our minds stirred up by way of reminder, lest we let things that we know slip and fall and we go back in maybe to practices that are not proper. It's always good to go back and rehearse things that we believe. Sometimes when we do that, we find that we still believe the exact same way. Other times we fine-tune our beliefs, and sometimes we change our views on something. I've had to change my views after studying and restudying. No matter how advanced I think I am on a subject, whenever I go back and review and restudy, I always find something fresh, find a better way to understand a particular point, or sometimes I change my mind because of deeper study. And all this helps me when I witness and explain my views to other people. So what I'd like to do in this first lesson is start at the beginning of my journey on this subject. And the last time I celebrated Christmas wholeheartedly was in 1996. It doesn't seem like a long time to me, but some of my children call the 90, 90s vintage. <laughs> Rosalind brought an outfit into the bedroom. She said, look at this vintage outfit from the 90s, Dad, not long ago. And I thought, man, the 90s is vintage now. So, What first got me thinking about this subject was a phone call that I had with my now wife, and we were talking on the phone, and I don't remember how it got brought up, but she told me, she said, you know, there's a verse in the Bible that speaks against putting up a tree in your home and decorating it. And I was like, no. <laughs> I've been raised in church my whole life. There's no verse in the Bible that says that. You ever been one of those people? No, that's not in the Bible. That can't be in the Bible. And so now I laugh because that began, that conversation began my long journey of realizing that many things were in the Bible that I was not aware of being in the Bible. <laughs> so I'm thankful that Tisha told me that that day. And she told me to turn over to Jeremiah 10. Now this was before the internet. I guess maybe it had been invented at the time. But it was all dial-up. Everybody remember the dial-up? We'd have to listen to the phone go and, you know, take three minutes for a little simple page to load. Uh, we did not have a computer. I lived with my grandparents at the time. We did not have a computer in that house. My grandmama and granddaddy never got a computer to this day. Grandmama, she's still alive. She does not have a computer in her house. Just now got Wi-Fi so she could watch Netflix. She likes Highway to Heaven <laughs> on Netflix. So 
but we didn't have anything like that. This was before all that, much less the latest iPhone where we can just pull up information just like that. We're so blessed to have that technology. It can be used for the good. It's used for a lot of evil, but it can be used for the good. Let's remember that. So I opened up the Bible that I had at the time. I was given this Bible in 1995. I still have it. It's my old King James Study Bible put out by Thomas Nelson Publishers. And I opened up this Bible. You see a picture of it on the screen. I don't use this Bible much anymore, but I looked for it yesterday in my library, and I, I found it. And it's the only one I had at the time. It's the only study book that I had. And I read Jeremiah 10, 1 through 5, and this is what I read over the phone with Tisha that night, that day. Hear ye the word which the Lord, it's all capital letters, so it signifies the tetragrammaton, yod Hey wal Hey is there. Hear ye the word which Yahweh speaketh unto you, O house of Israel. Thus saith Yahweh, Learn not the way of the heathen, and be not dismayed at the signs of the heaven. For the heathen are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vain. For one cutteth a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They deck it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers, that it move not. They are upright as the palm tree, but speak not. They must needs be born, because they cannot go. Be not afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither also is it in them to do good. Now, I read that way back in 1997. And I think at first I was speechless, because I could not believe that something like that was in the Bible. Over the years, as I've learned proper hermeneutics, Bible study, interpretation methods, I've gained a more developed understanding of this text. I actually do, I'll say this here at the first part of the series, I actually do believe that this text still condemns the practice of the modern-day Christmas tree, by the way. I've grown in my exegesis of the text. We'll eventually get to exegeting this text in Jeremiah 10. But I never want to forget my first childlike faith reading of that text. Sometimes I think we get too smart for our own good when we study the Bible. What I mean by this is that instead of reading it with childlike eyes, we talk ourselves out of something that the text says. Now, Bible study can be hard. Bible study can be in-depth. But when we just read, believe, and obey like little children, I think that's probably when our faith is the purest. So I read this that day. I believed it, and I never did what Yahweh said not to do again. Now fast forward 25 years into the future. <laughs> Time seems like it has flown. I have grandchildren now. Here I am talking about a phone call I had with Tisha. Her and I have been married almost 24 years. And as a married couple, Tisha and I have never put up a Christmas tree. We've never celebrated Christmas. My five children have never celebrated Christmas. We've never told our children that there was a Santa Claus. We've never done anything in our home pertaining to Christmas. One thing I always remember when I talk about this subject, I always remember one time I was standing in the line at the grocery store, and I was holding, I believe it was Morgan, in my arms. She was maybe three or four years old, about like little Bowen back there. And it was in the month of December, and of course in the month of December, everybody's, you know, have a holly jolly, you know, all that. And someone looked at her in my arms, and they asked her something like, what do you want Santa to bring you this year? And I didn't say anything, and Morgan looked at her, just matter-of-factly, straight shot. She said, we don't believe in Santa Claus. <laughs> <laughs> Some people don't like that. You teach your children things like that. But I've tried to teach my children not to instigate things, but I've told them if somebody asks them anything, then it's open season, right? A lot of times I get around people that I love and I don't bring anything up. When they bring something up to me, I, I bring up things to them. My daughter knew that. That's my oldest daughter. She knew that because we practiced Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 in our home. Repeat these things to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. That's, how, that's why she knew that. Because we taught her the scriptures against lying and against heathenism and against pagan practice. I've revisited my studies on Christmas a few times 
over the last 25 years, and I've came to the same or similar conclusions that I had the first time I ever read Jeremiah 10, 1 through 5. When I first restudied the subject, it was 2003, and I tried to go into the study. I fasted. I prayed. I was trying to be objective because I didn't want to teach or believe anything incorrect, and I didn't want to tell somebody it was wrong to do something if it wasn't wrong to do it. Uh, at the same token, I didn't want to tell somebody it was right to do something if it was wrong to do it. I went over this again in 2011 and 2012, about nine years ago, and I came to similar conclusions but more depth. Now, here we are today in 2021, but I'm going to spend my time over the next few weeks. I'm going to go back over my studies, and I'm going to share with you what I go over when I do my weekly teachings here at our Holy Convocation. And I'm going to start today by saying something that should be obvious to anybody who has read and studied the Bible. Not somebody who has skimmed over it, not somebody who was bought a Bible and never read it, but somebody that has read the Bible at least one time through cover to cover and has studied portions of the Bible, this should be obvious. And this is where I always begin when I talk to somebody about this subject. None of the earliest believers in the Messiah, whether they were Israelite or non-Israelite, commonly called Jew or Greek, Jew or Gentile in the KJV, none of them celebrated what we call Christmas. The best place to start is in primary source material. And primary source material here is the New Testament, the apostolic scriptures, the gospels, the epistles, the historical record in the book of Acts. We don't have a record of anything in the first century AD where believers in the Messiah celebrated Christmas. It's not there. Now they believed in the Christ, the anointed one. They believed that he had been born they believe the accounts that we have in Matthew 1 through 2 and Luke 1 through 2, the birth narratives of the Messiah. And at Yeshua's birth, there was an angel of Yahweh, the text says, that announced to the shepherds, he said this, he said, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, a Savior who is the Messiah, the Master, was born for you in the city of David. That's Luke chapter 2, verse 11. And then in Luke chapter 2, verse 13, it says, Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel, praising the Almighty and saying, Glory to the Almighty in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. That's from the HCSB, which renders it better than the KJV. You're probably familiar with the KJV because at this time of the year people say, Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. And that's actually not attested to in the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of Luke, it'll make the hair stand up on the back of people's necks if you tell them it's supposed to say peace on earth to people he favors. <laughs> it will. But Yahweh does favor those who serve him. He does. In one sense of the word, he loves everybody, but he favors those who serve him, who are his children. So according to Luke chapter 2 here, when the Messiah was born, there was rejoicing, there was celebration over Yeshua's birth. Because why? Some people were already recognizing the promised Messiah has been born in the city of David. Prophecy was being fulfilled. It was announced to shepherds. I believe Brother TJ brought up the shepherds recently in one of his sermons, which shows the lowliness and the humility of our Messiah right from the start. The shepherds were considered low class, lower class people. But the angels, the heavenly host, announced it to the shepherds. After that occurrence in Luke 2, each year as the date or the day of the birth of the Messiah rolled around, there was no Christmas. We aren't told here in Luke 2 anything about December 25th. That's not even Yahweh's calendar, right? That's a man-made calendar, Julian, Gregorian. Much less are we told anything about Santa Claus, reindeer, Christmas tree, ornaments. That's not in the Bible. You won't find that in the Bible. Not only this, and I'll develop this as we get more into our studies, there's not only nothing in the first century in the primitive church, the Hebrew messianic faith about Christmas, there's nothing in the second century about a feast day celebrating Christ's birth. From 100 AD to 200 AD, there's nothing in the quote-unquote early church fathers, what's sometimes called the anti-Nicene church fathers. Now these men are not scripture and I do not agree with everything that they wrote 
but these are generally early Gentile Christians who lived and wrote prior to the church council of Nicaea in 325 AD. Long story short, the council, the church council of Nicaea was convened in order to begin deciding what's now called the classic doctrine of the Trinity. They also decided on what they believed to be the proper date for Easter. They didn't call it Easter, they called it Pasha. And they decided at the Council of Nicaea that Pasha would always be celebrated on the Sunday that followed the 14th day of the moon of Abib. And there's more intricacy in, in, in that, but that's it in a nutshell. Now I have the 10 volume set of the Antinicene Fathers. It's good reading, but there's nothing in the second century suggesting any celebration in the wintertime for the birth of the Messiah. Nothing in there about a feast day celebrating the Messiah's birth at all in the second century. Christmas is much like the doctrine of the Trinity. Now this is not going to upset people here, but I've told this to people and it's very upsetting to them when I say this, but Christmas, much like the doctrine of the Trinity, was something that developed in Gentile Christianity in the 4th and 5th centuries A.D. We're talking about the 300s and the 400s A.D. Christmas had to develop and the doctrine of the Trinity had to develop. When you read the Older Testament and the Newer Testament and the Antinicene Fathers, nobody believed in the doctrine of the Trinity. Nobody celebrated Christmas as part of their faith. Those were later developments of doctrine. Abraham was not a Trinitarian. John the Baptist was not a Trinitarian. So those two actually go hand in hand. The, the development of, of Christmas as a religious Christian holy day and the doctrine of the Trinity go hand in hand. Um, none of them were believed. Either doctrine was believed by New Testament Messianic people. Now sometimes when I point these things out to traditional Christians, they'll say something like this. They'll say, well, Matthew, the early believers didn't celebrate Thanksgiving either. They didn't celebrate Independence Day either. I, I will say, unless, of course, we understand that the Hebrew Thanksgiving that takes place in the autumn season actually is the Feast of Tabernacles. And the first Thanksgiving probably coincided with the Feast of Tabernacles because it was kept early October instead of late November. If, if my memory serves me right, the late November date was chosen by uh, President Abraham Lincoln uh, later on in American history. But the obvious answer here is one reason that no early believers that we read about in the Newer Testament celebrated these holidays, Thanksgiving, Independence Day, is because their origin of these holidays did not exist back then. That should be the obvious answer. They didn't exist back then. These are American holidays. They find their origin in American history, which only dates back at the most to the 1600s AD. So we're looking at about, you know, uh, 400 plus years ago or less. This would be like me saying no early believer in the Messiah in the first century observed Memorial Day. Well, you'd say, well, of course they didn't observe Memorial Day because that's a day that we have here in America where we remember American soldiers who have died in wars gone past. So, of course, they didn't observe that. The American Memorial Holiday did not exist back then. So, when somebody mentions this point to me, Part of the point is legit, and this is the part that's legitimate. Just because a holiday was not observed by the earliest Christians doesn't automat automatically make that holiday pagan. And when I say pagan, I mean devoted to other mighty ones, devoted to other Elohim. But Christmas is not in the same category as Thanksgiving or the 4th of July, and here's why. Thanksgiving and the 4th of July find their origins in early American history. Christmas claims to find its origin not in American history, but in the birth of Christ. The birth of Christ took place about 2,000 years ago. Scholars dated anywhere from 7 B.C. to 4 A.D. So the event that was supposed to catapult the holiday happened back before the book of Acts. Yet no believer in the Messiah recorded in the book of Acts celebrated Christmas or anything like Christmas. Today, it's one of the biggest, if not the biggest, annual feast day in the traditional Christian church. The only one that competes with it in the Christian church is Easter. And Easter is just a, a replacement for the Pesach, the Passover. So Christmas is probably the biggest annual feast day in the traditional Christian church. 
if it is supposed to be such a prestigious Christian holiday, why did not the earliest believers in Christ celebrate it after he was born? The event happened. They could have done it, but they did not. Now, we do celebrate the birth of the Messiah in a manner of speaking. Sometimes we read the accounts of his birth, and we rejoice at those accounts. We're thankful that our Messiah was born. Uh, we can sing a song about his birth, just like we can sing a song about his death. Or we can sing a song about his resurrection. So we're thankful that he was born. Amen. We don't know when he was born. We'll talk about that here in just a second. We don't know when he was born. Scripture doesn't tell us that information. But we do rejoice and celebrate the fact that he was born and later sent into the world to save us from our sins. But this does not equal Christmas. <laughs> now, it's pretty popular in the Torah community to believe that Yeshua was born on the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles. If you haven't heard that, you just had not been around the community enough or long enough because every time Tabernacles rolls around, I see things like this shared on social media. Sukkot, celebrate the true birth of the Messiah. He was born on the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles, and he was circumcised on the eighth day, that crowning day of the feast. Well, the Bible does not say that. <laughs> it, it, it would be cool if it was true, but the Bible just doesn't say that. And sometimes this makes Messianic people just as mad as when you tell Christians that our Messiah probably wasn't born on December 25th. Messianic people get just as mad when I tell them, no, our Messiah wasn't born on the first day of Sukkot. The best that they can come up with is John 1, verse 14, where we read that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word dwelt, they point out that the Greek word there, skenu, literally means to pitch a tent or to tabernacle. And yes, that's what the word means. But every time you see the Greek word skenu, it doesn't mean that the Feast of Tabernacles is being celebrated. And that's not what John 1.14 is talking about. It's not talking about the Feast of Tabernacles in context. Uh, that same Greek word, skenu, is used in the Septuagint version of Genesis 13, verse 12, where it says that Lot pitched his tent in or as far as Sodom. Was Lot celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles when he pitched his tent towards Sodom? No, him and Abraham, or Abram at that time, were deciding what land they wanted to, to live on. Abram gave Lot and his herdsmen first choice, and then Abram took what was left over. It does kind of sound neat if Yeshua was born at this time, but it's not true, and we need to drop this idea if we have it, because it's just as unprovable, maybe more so even, than the December 25th date. Let me show you why. Look with me to Luke chapter 2, 1 through 5. I'm reading now from the World English Bible. Luke 2, 1 through 5. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be enrolled. This was the first enrollment made when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to enroll themselves, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to David's city, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David to enroll himself with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him as wife, being pregnant. Now, I'm not going to do a complete exegesis of this text here. This is part of the birth narrative of Yeshua as recorded by Luke. I want you to notice here in verse 5, Mary, she was pledged or betrothed, engaged to Yosef, and she was pregnant with the promised Messiah because of the miracle that happened in Luke chapter 1. I want you to look at verse 1 here. Let's look at something a little bit more detailed. Look at verse 1. There was a decree that goes out from the Caesar at the time who was Augustus. And the decree went out that all the world, and the Greek word for world there means the inhabited earth, probably in context the Roman Empire, all the world should be taxed or enrolled or registered. Some Bibles say taxed, registered, or enrolled is probably better. Basically, it's a census that's taking place. Of everyone that lived in the Roman Empire, probably for the purpose of making sure everyone gets taxed. So they're registered in a census so that everybody gets taxed. So this decree goes out, and then look at verse 3. It says that everyone went to his own city to be enrolled. Verse 4 explains what that means. It says that they went to the city of their ancestry. 
Joseph and his betrothed left Galilee, which is in the northern region of Israel, the city of Nazareth. They left that area and they traveled to southern Israel, but they did not travel to Jerusalem, which is where the festivals were kept at this time. They did not travel to Jerusalem. He went to the city of David. David calls this his city in 1 Samuel 20, verse 6. The city of David known as Bethlehem. Why did he go there? Because he was of the house, the family line or the lineage of David. He had Davidic ancestry. Bethlehem, as you see on the map, is south of Jerusalem by about five miles. Down at the bottom of the map, you have Jerusalem, which is just above Bethlehem. They're about five miles apart. The white arrow on the screen shows where they journeyed from, the territory of the region of Galilee, the city of Nazareth, all the way down to Bethlehem. If I remember right, I think it's about a 70-mile journey. And so he probably, Joseph probably walked, he probably had Mary ride on an animal, a donkey, mule, something like that. Bethlehem is south of Jerusalem by about five miles. That's not far by, by car, but it would take about an hour and a half to casually walk or journey on good terrain, about 90 minutes to walk that five miles. The main point here is that Joseph and Mary were not traveling to Jerusalem from Nazareth. Jerusalem was where the feast days were celebrated. They were going to Bethlehem for the census, not Jerusalem. He was born in Bethlehem, not in Jerusalem. And it wasn't only them. Luke chapter 2 verse 3 says that everyone went to be registered or enrolled, each to his own city. So we've got people in the land of Israel traveling all over the place to be registered and enrolled so that they could be taxed. And if they're all going each to his own city, that obviously doesn't mean that they're all congregated in Jerusalem for a festival. So it couldn't have been the Feast of Tabernacles. It's impossible. The text would have definitely had, had said that it was if Caesar Augustus made a decree that during the Feast of Tabernacles everybody was to go not to Jerusalem but to all the different cities in Israel, the text would have recorded that. There probably would have been a revolt among the, the Israelite people of that time. There's no indication in the Gospels that the Israelites were not allowed to celebrate their feasts under Roman rule. And the only thing we need to do here is look at Luke chapter 2, 41 through 42. Same chapter, a little bit later on, our Messiah now has made it up to 12 years of age. And in Luke 2, 41 through 42, it says every year his parents traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom of the festival. So the Israelites were allowed to keep the feasts under Roman rule. It was their custom to travel to Jerusalem. That was the place where Yahweh had put his name at that time in the land of Israel. That is not where Joseph and Mary traveled when the, uh, Yeshua was born. That is not where everybody was traveling. So it could not have been Sukkot. The birth of Yeshua recorded in Luke 2, 1 through 20 did not take place during Sukkot. It sounds good, it might give Messianic people warm fuzzies, but it didn't happen that way. So in this lesson, I have shared with you the beginning of my journey on this subject where I read Jeremiah 10, 1 through 5. I've also told you that no Christians, Jew or Greek, celebrated Christmas in either the first or second century AD. I've told you that Thanksgiving or Independence Day, that argument is not really a proper parallel. I've also told you that we can think on, rejoice in, sing about, celebrate the fact that the Messiah was born got no problem with that. And I've told you that Yeshua, I believe, he was definitely not born during the Feast of Tabernacles. I don't think he was born during any commanded feast for that matter. So I want you to meditate on those points. Uh, feel free to ask me any questions if you like. Um, and we'll pick this back up next week. Now next week I want to look at the December 25th date. At least that's what I have in my mind right now. That could change as I study through the week. But I want to look at the December 25th date, the significance of that or non-significance of that. Um, and ask why many Christians choose to celebrate Christmas on that day. There's always a reason for everything that we do, whether we want to admit it or not. There's always a reason. Before we get to the late December date theories for the birth of Christ, I'd like to set the scene for you to understand what was going on in first century Israel. We began to talk about Christmas last week, and we're going to continue that today. There were two winter festivals 
that took place in the first century around Israel, in and around Israel. Neither one of them were Christmas. So let me explain what I mean when I say that. I want to begin with the festival of Hanukkah. Uh, Hanukkah was celebrated by the Israelites of the first century. Now you can read about this feast in the Deuterocanonical books. Some people call them the Apocrypha. You can read about this feast in 1st and 2nd Maccabees. I was going back over my notes today and I thought, oh, how I would have loved to have grown up with 1st and 2nd Maccabees in my Bible. But I didn't learn about them until I was older. Remember that these books were in the 1611 King James Version. And they were also in the 1560 Geneva Bible. One thing that we try to do as a family, my wife and I and our five children, not every year, but a lot of years, we've sat down on the first night of Hanukkah and we've read 1 Maccabees chapters 1 through 4. And that's the best way for you to learn about the origin of this feast. Don't listen to what anybody else says. Just go and read 1 Maccabees chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. That's the best way to learn. Hanukkah actually begins this coming week, by the way. Uh, according to my calculations, it begins Sunday night. So you could go ahead and plan a family reading if you'd like. In 1 Maccabees chapter 1, there's this Grecian king, heathen king, and his name is Antiochus. His surname or nickname is Epiphanes. Uh, he attached the name Epiphanes to his name because Epiphanes means God manifest and he had a God complex as a heathen ruler. Some people mockingly called him Antiochus Epimenes which means Antiochus the madman because of how ruthless he was towards the Israelites of that era. About 200 or so years, maybe 150 plus years before the time of the Messiah, Antiochus took it upon himself to take over Jerusalem he stopped all temple service. He removed all the utensils in the temple, silver and the gold. He killed anybody that was caught honoring the Sabbath or the feasts. He killed anybody who was circumcising their sons on the eighth day. He forbid the speaking of the sacred name. Matter of fact, historically, Antiochus was the first person to ever forbid people to speak the sacred name. So it wasn't Israelites that first forbid the speaking of the sacred name. It was a command from a heathen king towards Israel to not say the name. He forced people to eat pig. And he even offered up a pig on the altar at the temple. And he did this on the 25th day of the ninth moon uh, on the Israelite or Yahweh's calendar. Some people in Israel forsook the Holy Covenant during his time. And they went after the ways of the heathens. Other people in Israel chose to suffer and die instead of break the covenant. They stood strong for the Almighty. There was an Israelite man named Mariahu. In Greek, they call him Mattathias, but he was Hebrew. His name was Mariahu. And he was one people or one person that fled from Jerusalem. He fled first to a country named Modin in order to save his life and the life of his family. And he was later approached while he was in Modin from messengers that Antiochus sent. And they asked him to follow the king's orders. Come back and follow the orders of the king. And Mattiahu refused, and he said this, 1 Maccabees 2, 19 through 22. He said, I don't care if every Gentile in this empire has obeyed the king and yielded to the command to abandon the religion of his ancestors. My children, my relatives, and I will continue to keep the covenant that the Almighty made with our ancestors. With the Almighty's help, we will never abandon his law or disobey his commands. We will not obey the king's decree, and we will not change our way of worship in the least. Well, Mattiahu had to flee again, and this time he fled out into the wilderness where he lived, along with some of the other Israelites who would not forsake Yahweh's covenant. They lived there, and they obeyed the Torah the best that they could while they lived in the wilderness. Antiochus found this out, and he sent an army to kill these Israelites. And he was tricky because he sent the army on the Sabbath day because he knew that the Israelites would not fight. And sure enough, they did not fight. And a thousand, around a thousand Israelites died. They had a meeting there. Mariahu decided that from now on, if somebody came against them and attacked them on the Sabbath, they would defend themselves. They wouldn't go on the offensive on the Sabbath. But if somebody attacked them on the Sabbath, they would defend their life. 
So they built this Hebrew militia of sorts. And they began going around and wiping out pagans and paganism in the area. And they considered their actions justified. They would quote passages in the Torah and Deuteronomy. And the reason they considered their actions justified is because they did not start the fight. The fight was started against them. Their country was taken over. So they would look at people like Phineas in Numbers 25 that threw a spear through the Israelite man and the non-Israelite woman that committed whoredom there in front of the temple when Israel had joined themselves to Baal Peor. Well, Mattiahu later died and the people mourned his death. But his son, Yehuda Maccabee, became the commander. Yehuda was nicknamed Maccabee. Maccabee is an Aramaic word that means hammer. And the reason they called him Yehuda the hammer was because of his great abilities in war. He was like David's mighty men. He was devoted to both destroying pagans who had ransacked Jerusalem, and he was devoted to destroying paganism, heathenism. Well, Yehuda Maccabee and his men eventually took Jerusalem back over by force about three years after Antiochus defiled the holy city. When Yehuda Maccabee took over Jerusalem with the Israelites, they destroyed the defiled altar. They got rid of the defiled altar. They built a new altar, and they made new utensils for worship in the temple. 1 Maccabees 4, 54 through 56 and 59 tells us that on the 25th day of the ninth month, the month of Kislev, in the year 148, was the anniversary of the day the Gentiles had desecrated the altar. On that day, a sacrifice was offered on the new altar in accordance with the law of Moses. The new altar was dedicated and hymns were sung to the accompaniment of harps, lutes, and cymbals. All the people bowed down with their faces to the ground and worshiped and praised the master for giving them victory. For eight days, they celebrated the rededication of the altar. With great joy, they brought burnt offerings and offered fellowship offerings and thank offerings. And then Yehuda, his brothers, and the entire community of Israel decreed that the rededication of the altar should be celebrated with a festival of joy and gladness at the same time each year, beginning on the 25th of the month or moon of Kislev and lasting for eight days. Now we read of the reason for the eight days in 2 Maccabees chapter 10, verses 5 through 9, where it says... They rededicated the temple on the 25th day of the month of Kislev, the same day of the same month on which the temple had been desecrated by the Gentiles. The happy celebration lasted eight days like the festival of shelters, Tabernacles, Sukkot. And the people remembered how only a short time before they had spent the festival of shelters wandering like wild animals in the mountains and living in caves but now carrying green palm branches and sticks decorated with ivy, they paraded around, singing grateful praises to him who had brought about the purification of his own temple. Everyone agreed that the entire Jewish nation should celebrate this festival each year. The days of Antiochus Epiphanes had come to an end. So the reason for the eight days of dedication was to remind the Israelites of how just a short time before, remember this was the 25th day of the ninth moon, a short time before in the seventh moon on the 15th day would have been Chag Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. But they were not able to keep Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. So they said in remembrance of Tabernacles we'll wave the palm branches and we'll be thankful that now our city is restored. There's a legend about the miracle of the oil that lasted for eight days. That there was just a little bit of oil and it lasted for eight days, and thus we have the eight days of Hanukkah. That's more of a legend, maybe a myth. Could be true, may not be true. It's not recorded in the books of Maccabees. The reason for the eight days is listed here in Second Maccabees 10, historically. Now, if you'll notice in these texts, it mentions dedicated and rededicated. The word dedication in Hebrew is the word Hanukkah. So when you hear somebody say Hanukkah, it means dedication. And the reason it's called Hanukkah was because the city and the temple was rededicated back to the Almighty. And this is mentioned in John chapter 10, verses 22 through 23, where we read, It was the feast of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Yeshua was walking in the temple in Solomon's porch. Now, there's a footnote 
out beside this verse in the 1611 KJV. I have a replica at my house. And in the 1611 KJV, out beside it, you'll see it on the screen, it refers you to 1 Maccabees 4, verse 59. That's because 1 Maccabees was in that Bible until some Protestants decided to rip it out of the Bible. Um, so the Feast of Dedication or Hanukkah is not a commanded feast. It's not commanded, but it does have righteous origins and is permissible to observe or memorialize if you so choose. Now obviously as humans do a lot with things and celebrations, Hanukkah has turned into a Jewish Christmas for a lot of people where they have a Hanukkah bush and it's more about gift giving but you read about the origin of the festival in Maccabees and it should be a time that we remember the righteous people who lost their lives for the Torah and thankful that Yahweh's law and his dedication was back in Jerusalem under Yehuda Maccabee. The institution of the festival of Hanukkah shows us that it's permissible to observe feasts in addition to those that are commanded. The law in Deuteronomy 4 verse 2 is not against any additions or subtractions. What it's against is adding commandments or taking away commandments. Hopefully we understand that. So it's, it's okay to observe additional feasts to the commanded ones so long as they have righteous origins, number one, and number two, so long as they're not substitutes for Yahweh's commanded feasts. So we can't keep Hanukkah and say, we're just not going to do tabernacles this year, we're going to do Hanukkah. No, that would be a violation of Deuteronomy 4, verse 2. So long as we're dedicated to the commanded feast, it's okay to keep additional feasts that have righteous origins and are not substitutes. Hanukkah was not a replacement for a commandment. Uh, the Israelites that instituted the Feast of Dedication did not think they were replacing any of Yahweh's commanded feasts. But I said at the beginning that there were two winter festivals in and around Israel in the first century. What was the second one? Well, the other festival was one that was kept by the Romans. Rome was not far from the land of Israel. And I want you to remember that the Jewish people in the first century were under Roman occupation. Uh, the Romans were the people who literally or physically crucified our Messiah, right? Jewish people had the freedom to worship their mighty one, but they were under some type of Roman authority. Well, the Romans kept a winter festival known by the name of Saturnalia. And Saturnalia was the most popular holiday on the ancient Roman calendar. It was a holiday that honored the god Saturn, which was the Roman god of agriculture, and some say it was the Roman god of time. It marked the end of the autumn season and the beginning of winter, when the harvests were all the way done and winter was knocking on the door. This festival was kept right around the time of the winter solstice. The winter solstice today on our calendar falls on about December the 21st. It's the shortest day and the longest night of the year. And people get weary in winter because of the long nights. And what are we going to do? Let's have a feast. <laughs> and so the Romans said, we're going to party, and we're going to have this festival in honor of the god uh, Saturn. It began in the B.C. era as one single day observance on the pre-Julian calendar and the Julian calendar so right around December the 17th, what we call December 17th. But it later expanded into a multi-day festival, and it, it looks like historically that by the time of the Messiah, it was a week-long festival from December the 17th to December the 23rd, when Saturnalia was observed and kept. Now, I'm not going to take the time to read all of the ancient historians. You can do that if you like. You have them pretty much at your fingertips online. But there were several Roman authors poets and historians, some of them were Pliny, Macrobius, Catullus. They all wrote about this ancient Roman feast of Saturnalia, and that's where the dictionaries and encyclopedias pull their information from, those primary sources. I just want to cite one entry about Saturnalia from the Encyclopedia Britannica because it gives a good summary of this ancient Roman holiday. It says, Saturnalia, the most popular of Roman festivals dedicated to the Roman god Saturn, the festival's influence continues to be felt throughout the Western world. Originally celebrated on December 17th, 
Saturnalia was extended first to three and eventually to seven days. The date has been connected with the winter sowing season, which in modern Italy varies from October to January. Remarkably like the Greek Cronia, it was the liveliest festival of the year. All work and business were suspended. Slaves were given temporary freedom to say and do what they liked. And certain moral restrictions were eased. The streets were infected with a Mardi Gras madness. A mock king was chosen. The seasonal greeting, Yo Saturnalia, was heard everywhere. The closing days of the Saturnalia were known as Sigillaria, because of the custom of making toward the end of the festival presents of candles, wax bottles of fruit, and waxen statuettes, which were fashioned by the sigillary or manufacturers of small figures in wax and other media. The cult statue of Saturn himself, traditionally bound at the feet with woolen bands, was untied, presumably to come out and join the fun. The influence of the Saturnalia upon the celebrations of Christmas and the New Year has been direct. The fact that Christmas was celebrated on the birthday of the unconquered sun, Deus Solus Invicti Nati, gave the season a solar background connected with the calends of January. January 1, the Roman New Year. When houses were decorated with greenery and lights and presents were given to children and the poor. Concerning the gift candles, the Romans had a story that an old prophecy bade the earliest inhabitants of Latium send heads to Hades and Phota to Saturn. The ancient Latins interpreted this to mean human sacrifices, but according to legend, Hercules advised using lights, phos meaning light or man according to accent, and not human heads. End of that reference, and you can pull this up online as well. Now, some scholars find it just too much of a coincidence that some of the practices of Saturnalia are still observed today during the winter month of December, building up to the winter Solstice. Some of those things that we just read about Saturnalia, we still see in our modern day time. I'm of the belief that these scholars are correct. We certainly don't find anything in New Testament scripture showing that Israelite believers, Israelite Christians or Gentile Christians celebrated Yeshua's birth with, with greenery, with lights, with gift giving, indoor trees, wreaths on house doors. But as time progressed, it makes sense to me that as later Christians began celebrating Christmas in the winter and heathens began to celebrate their winter solstice festivities that gradually the two migrated and overlapped one another. Christians of the past, you can read in history, a lot of them didn't find any problem with this. Um, Martin Luther said that the lights on the Christmas tree represented Jesus as the light of the world. Uh, the evergreen tree represents everlasting life. So Christians in history have justified the mixing of righteousness with heathenism by saying that we have rebranded these customs, we've reinterpreted these customs. So the two winter festivals celebrated around Israel in the first century were Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication by the Israelites, and Saturnalia by the Romans. Hanukkah is a celebration of stamping out pagan practice and heathenism. That's what Hanukkah is all about, stamping it out. It's a memorial of rededicating Jerusalem and the temple to the service of Yahweh and keeping of the Torah. You find Hanukkah not by the Julian or Gregorian calendar. You actually find it by Yahweh's solar lunar calendar in the heavens on the ninth moon of Kislev. Saturnalia, on the other hand, is a celebration not of stamping out pagan practice, but it's the celebration of a pagan deity, or it was in ancient Rome. It's centered on the end of the fall harvest. It's centered around the winter solstice, and the beginning of winter, and the decorations for Saturnalia were put up to remind people that although the sun, the S-U-N sun, was having short days, it would come back eventually, and we'd have longer days again after the solstice. Which of these two festivals reminds you of Christmas? Well, I want you to think a little bit with me here. In some ways, both of them remind me of Christmas. And let me explain what I mean and just hear me out. On the one hand, at Christmas, there is a great scriptural event memorialized, the birth of the Messiah. There's nothing pagan about the birth of the Messiah. Christians sing about and talk about the birth of the Messiah. 
they read about it, they preach about it from the narratives of the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. They remember when he was born. You even see these things called nativity scenes set up in people's yards where it has like this little stable and a little manger and, you know, a representation of uh, Mary and Joseph and the shepherds. And with all of that, I don't really have a problem because it all comes from the Bible, minus the December 25th date. I'll talk about that the next time that I teach. However, everything else, other than what I just said from the Bible, everything else that goes on during the month of December does not find its origin in righteous practices in Scripture. All the greenery, the lights, the trees, the wreaths, the partying, all of that looks awfully like the Roman festival of Saturnalia that just so happened to be kept at this same time of the year in the month of December. So what we have in Christmas is not an entirely pagan festival. There are some truths in it that are taken from Scripture, but we also do not have an entirely Christian festival because interweaved within the celebration of the birth of Christ amongst Christians today, we have trappings of previous pagan winter solstice festivals. So Christmas is actually a mixture of the holy and the heathen. It's taking an account, a righteous, pure account from the Bible, and is mixing it with heathen and pagan practices, and then saying that's okay because we baptized or rebranded the customs and made them mean something to us different than what they meant anciently. And you've heard people say, and I hear this a lot when I explain these things to people, they say, well, that's not what it means to me. That's not what it means to me. And the best thing I always think about is, <clears throat> what do you think it means to Yahweh? You know, It doesn't really matter what it means to me or to you. We should ask ourselves, what, do, what does it mean to our king? What does it mean to our king? The illustration that I've given many times over the years, and everybody understands this, is especially if you're married, you know, I went to my wife, our anniversary falls on January the 22nd, but if I told my wife that I wanted to celebrate our anniversary this year, but I wanted to do it on a date of a previous girlfriend and mine anniversary, but I want to celebrate it with her, but I want to do it on that date. I want to tell her I love her, but I want her to wear the color that my old girlfriend loved to wear the most. You can see the steam start coming off, off of my wife's head, right? <laughs> Any wife in here would wonder, what in the world is he talking about? <laughs> and see, we all understand that. And so we have to ask ourselves when we're dealing with our wife, it's not so much what it means to us, but what does it mean to my wife? How much more when it comes to Yahweh? It doesn't really matter what it means to Matthew. It matters what it means to the king. So that's who I need to be concerned with. Uh, it's my belief that Yahweh's people should not be involved in mixing his truths, a righteous event like the birth of his Messiah, with ancient Roman or heathen practices. There is one early church father that I found who speaks against celebrating the Saturnalia. His name is Tertullian. And he lived from about 155 to 220 A.D. And his writings are probably 3rd century because he didn't convert to become a Christian until he was around 40 years old. So it would be late 2nd century, early 3rd century. He's one of the, what's called the anti-Nicene or pre-Nicene church fathers. One of the Christians that was kind of prominent in a Christian community that lived before the council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. Now, when it comes to the church fathers, I have mixed feelings because there's a lot of things I read that are just plain wrong. Um, when you compare them with Scripture, they're not Scripture. We can read them for good historical accounts. I have the 10 volume set at my house. It's good reading. And you can learn what a lot of the early Christian people believed. The thing about this subject, though, the subject of Christmas, is that I have not been able to find any primary evidence from the year 100 A.D. to the year 300 A.D. that anybody in Christianity celebrated a feast for the birth of the Messiah. Whether it be Tertullian, Origen, Hippolytus, Ignatius, any of them. 
haven't been able to find anything in pre-Nicene Christianity. Um, it's just not there until the fourth century. In the fourth century, Christianity became the official state religion, state religion in, in Rome under the Emperor Constantine. And that's when Christians no longer had to fear persecution from the heathens like they did in centuries gone by. So nowhere in the Bible in the first century, Messianic faith, in the second century, in the third century, I haven't been able to find anything where anybody celebrated in Christianity a festival for the birth of Christ. Tertullian talked about Saturnalia. I want to give you a couple of quotes from his writings. This first one is, is in his work on idolatry, chapter 10. The Minervalia are as much Minervas as the Saturnalia Saturns. Saturns which must necessarily be celebrated even by little slaves at the time of the Saturnalia. New Year's gifts likewise must bear caught at and the Septimontium kept. And all the presents of midwinter and the feast of dear kinsmanship must be exacted. The schools must be wreathed with flowers, the flames, wives, and the audible sacrifice. The school is honored on the appointed holy days. The same thing takes place on an idol's birthday. Every pomp of the devil is frequented. Who will think that these things are befitting to a Christian master? Here's another quote from On Idolatry, chapters 14 and 15. Notice this carefully. He says, But if we have no right of communion in matters of this kind with strangers, how far more wicked to celebrate them among brethren? By us, the Saturnalia and New Year's and Midwinter festivals are frequented. Presents come and go, New Year's gifts, games join their noise, banquets join their din. Oh, better fidelity of the nations to their own sect, which claims no solemnity of the Christians for itself, not the Lord's Day, not Pentecost, even if they had known them, would they have shared with us? For they would fear lest they should seem to be Christians. We are not apprehensive lest we seem to be heathens. Let me stop here for a second. Some of this is a little bit difficult to understand the English, but what Tertullian is saying here is that the heathens will not keep the Christian feast. They won't keep the Lord's Day with us or Pentecost with us because they don't want to look like or seem to be a Christian. But yet he condemns some Christians in his day that are keeping the heathen feast and they don't have a fear of being counted or seen to be a heathen. Continuing on. But let your works shine, saith he, but now all your shops and gates shine. You will nowadays find more doors of heathens without lamps and laurel wreaths than of Christians. What does the case seem to be with regard to that species of ceremony also? If it is an idol's honor, without doubt an idol's honor is idolatry. Then do you say the lamps before my doors and the laurels on my post are an honor to God? They are there, of course, not because they are an honor to God, but to him who is honored in God's stead by ceremonial observances of that kind. So far as is manifest, saving the religious performance which is in secret appertaining to demons. Now, Tertullian was not talking about Christmas because... Christmas did not exist. Christmas, as we know today, did not exist back then, the mixing of the birth of the Messiah with all these Roman customs. But what it did exist was Saturnalia, and Tertullian was condemning some Christians who were dabbling over into this celebration with the Romans. There's nothing new under the sun. People dabbled today. People dabbled back then. Now, surely, if Tertullian condemned them going to the Roman feast of Saturnalia, his Christian brothers he would have not approved of beginning a festival to honor the birth of the Messiah and then strapping to that festival the customs of the Roman Saturnalia. Of course, Tertullian would not approve of that. So on the one hand with Christmas, we have a Christian festival dedicated to remembering the great event of the birth of the Messiah. Uh, Christians sometimes ask me when I talk like this, they ask me, Brother Matthew, you don't believe in the birth of Christ? And of course I say, yeah, I believe in the birth of Christ. And then they say, well, what's wrong with remembering or celebrating Christ's birth? And I always answer, there's nothing wrong with remembering or celebrating Christ's birth. I was walking through my kitchen the other day remembering the birth of the Messiah. That's right. Thinking about the birth of the Messiah. I remember one time when my children were little, Rosalind was singing about the Messiah's birth and it, we was in the month of July because we do celebrate our Messiah's birth. I don't believe we know when he was born. I don't think anybody knows when he was born. But there's nothing wrong with remembering or celebrating the birth of the Messiah. The Hanukkah precedent, the, the history of Hanukkah shows us that if we want to celebrate and remember a great occasion in the Bible, that's fine, so long 
as we don't do it as a substitute for Yahweh's commanded feasts. And so long as we don't co-opt heathen customs and try to add them to that celebration. And this is where the problem is at. Those who celebrate Christmas generally do not observe Yahweh's holy days. It's a substitute. Secondarily, those who celebrate Christmas while seeking to honor the birth of the Messiah, they have added this celebration to this celebration customs that have absolutely nothing to do with his birth. Nothing. Look around in society. Everybody and their uncle celebrates Christmas, not just Christians. Atheists, agnostics celebrate Christmas. They even call it Christmas. They don't even believe in the Bible. Why do they celebrate? I asked one one time. He said, because it's fun. They celebrate it because it's a fun vestige of the ancient Saturnalia. And most people realize that it's not a scriptural feast. Most people do. They just make excuses as to why it's okay to do it now. But all the decor that you see at this time of the year does not stem from Hebrew culture, but from pagan Roman culture. So the question that you have to ask yourself is this, and I'll close with this. Is Yahweh pleased with ignoring his commanded feast, substituting them with our own feasts, and then incorporating within Christian feasts customs from Greco-Roman culture and baptizing and reinterpreting those customs? It's a question you have to ask yourself. I'm not trying to force my belief on anybody. My wife and I made our decision a long time ago about this, and we stand by it today. But you have to ask yourself, what does it mean to the Creator? What does it mean to him?